My wife told me to button my coat, but I think I'm too fat, so I'm gonna kid you. Oh, Bernie. Oh, Bernie. He's so cute. He's not too fat. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard on LA's KPFK 90.7 FM. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast at 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. That's right, you can run but you can't hide. We are coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, Grateful Dread, Public Radio in Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Says me, thank you for joining us today for another action-packed, thrilling adventure. That uh, lovely voice you heard was Desi Doyens, our producer. How are you, Desi Doyens? I'm doing all right. All right. Uh, are you resting up? Are you ready? We're about to have uh, actual voting starting uh, just days from uh, from now. I know. The uh, long national nightmare will eventually be over. <laughs> I was going to say, the long national <laughs> nightmare is just beginning uh, with the first votes of the 2016 season. Now set to be cast in Iowa just days from today in the February 1 Iowa caucuses and the first mass voter suppression trial of 2016 now underway in North Carolina, uh, challenging that state's new polling place photo ID restrictions put in place. Of course, by the state GOP, I will be joined momentarily by the Brennan Center's uh, Mirna Perez, whose new report explains what we must do to reform our voting system across the U.S. and in a way that actually increases security, decreases fraud, rather than uh, pretending to increase security and decrease fraud under the phony premise of, of combating voter fraud at the polling place, as so many of these new GOP uh, restrictions on voting around the country now pretend to do. In fact, those uh, those Republican laws making it more difficult to vote are now in place in more than half of our states. This These were put in place since 2010. Hmm, what happened just before 2010 that would make Republicans want to keep people from voting? Hmm. Anyway, uh, those, uh, those laws, of course, those Republican laws have been shown to prevent far more legitimate votes disproportionately, by the way, votes of Democratic-leaning voters, than the number of fraudulent votes that they could even possibly prevent. 
So uh, Miranda Perez will be here uh, momentarily to discuss six recommendations for actually improving election integrity and voter access to the polls without sacrificing the security and integrity of our elections. Also, uh, some breaking news uh, just coming in, uh, some breaking debate news coming in as we go to air today. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. And uh, and the election integrity community community lost one of our own over the past week. Um, I'll get to that as well. All of that and more is ahead today. But first, uh, on yesterday's program, we were talking with Paul Douglas, the uh, veteran meteorologist who happens to be a Republican and an evangelical Christian as well. Right. A very lonely man, that Paul Douglas at this point. <laughs> you mean as I far think. as in the Republican <laughs> yes, Party? Correct. Yes. Uh, and it's kind of amazing when you talk to these guys that they're still hanging in there. I, I will tell you this. I am glad that they still are. I'm glad that there are still people inside uh, that party, identifying with that party, trying and trying to do something about uh, how, well, it's a broken party. It's just a broken party at this point someone needs to be there to save it to try to pull it back off from over the cliff i wish paul douglas good luck he gets it he really gets it when it comes to global warming and climate change as a meteorologist as a scientist uh you know as a data guy he gets it uh we we talked a little bit on on uh, yesterday's program with paul douglas about the 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 number of deaths that we are seeing from extreme weather, which, as he said, is now, this is his word, juiced by uh, warming oceans, global warming and climate change and so forth. Well, Ben Norton uh, points out now that the uh, uh, death toll has increased since the weekend blizzard. Uh, at least 41 Americans were killed in that massive blizzard, dubbed Snowstorm Jonas. This is Ben Norton over at Salon. He says many died in car accidents with icy roads covered in blankets of snow, greatly increasing the chances of death and injuries. Several died from carbon monoxide poisoning, such as the 23-year-old New Jersey mother and her son after their car was uh, stuck in the snow. New America, a nonpartisan think tank, calculated in uh, mid-2015 that 26 Americans, this was uh, in mid-2016, they uh, mid-2015 they did this calculation, 26 Americans were killed by self-proclaimed jihadists in the U.S. in the 14 years, in the 14 years after the September 11, 2001 attacks. 26 Americans were killed. So that is to say that more Americans were killed in Snowstorm Jonas over the weekend than by Islamic extremists in the more than 5,000 days after the 9-11 attacks. Just four weeks ago, in late December, Salon also reported that more Americans had been killed in storms over the Christmas weekend. And those were some amazing storms across the country. More were killed in, uh, in, in those storms over Christmas than in ex Islamic extremist attacks since 9-11, including the December attacks in San Bernardino, in which 14 Americans were killed. At least 43 Americans died in December's extreme weather. Together, more than 84 Americans were killed in those two storms. And yet... What do you hear about when you watch these debates? You hear about, oh, the threat from ISIS, the threat from terrorism. We've got to do something about it from every single Republican candidate. 
And those same exact Republican candidates do not want to mention a word about climate change. And if they do, it's only to dismiss it and say it's a hoax. Or if it's not a hoax, then, oh, it's God doing it. And the climate changes all the time. And there's not a damn thing we can do about it. It's just appalling. You're uh, suggesting they have misplaced priorities? Uh, You think? 84 Americans in just these two storms alone. Which outpaces, you know, all of the uh, the Americans killed by uh, terror attacks in this country since 9-11. It's remarkable. And uh, the loss of human life, Ben Norton notes, is not the only damage uh, thanks to the weekend's blizzard and other extreme weather like it. E- economists estimate the damages and losses precipitated by the weekend storm alone will be approximately $3 billion dollars not including the cost of repairing infrastructure. So these folks on the right who pretend to be conservative, who pretend to give a damn about the economy, if you give a damn about the economy, then you would want to invest in uh, doing something about climate change, if only to save money to the U.S. taxpayers. But they don't care about that. They care about only saving money to the uh to the billionaire donor Correct. class and to the oil industry, which includes the billionaire donor class. That's it. You got it exactly right. Uh, which brings us to Bernie Sanders. Of course it does. Yeah, because your imitation there was perfect. You didn't even have to sound like I'm just the billionaire donor class. We all think of Bernie Sanders as well. We should, because uh, at uh, that uh, Iowa forum on CNN last night, once again, Bernie Sanders is just remarkable at his ability to stay on message. Every candidate running for any office in this country or any other, I think, can learn from Bernie Sanders in his uh, in his message discipline. Of course, that is if you can find Bernie Sanders. That is if you can, you know, spot one of these forums or debates. The CNN thing was a a town hall so the candidates didn't actually get to talk to each other it was an extended uh, interview with questions from the audience and so forth but the the good news is we might have another new debate well it's good news for me maybe not for you desi doy and you'll have to pull all the audio and everything (laughs) else but uh, after months of grassroots anger directed at the democratic party over its debate schedule the new hampshire union leader and msnbc plan now to defy democratic leaders including uh, DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz. They will uh, jointly host a debate for Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley in New Hampshire five days before that state's primary. But, of course, no one knows if the candidates will actually show up. The DNC has previously said it would exclude candidates or networks that participate in any unsanctioned debate from the future sanctioned debates, that includes there's uh, one in uh, February 11 in Wisconsin, one on March 9 after Super Tuesday in Florida. So far, only uh, Martin O'Malley has said he would participate in this newly announced New Hampshire uh, debate. It's unclear whether former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders will agree to join. This is uh, just news that is breaking within the last hour or so. The uh, new debate would be scheduled for February 4. That would be three days after the Iowa caucuses, but before the New Hampshire debate, because right now there are no more debates 
between uh, now and uh, the time Iowa votes and the time New Hampshire votes. It would be hosted if it moves forward by MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and NBC's Chuck Todd, according to the union leader. Uh, Our readers have demanded a debate to help them see who is most fit to be the Democratic uh, Democratic nominee for president. According to Joe McQuaid, president and publisher of The Union Leader, we are uh, glad to partner with MSNBC, he says, to ensure Granite Staters have the information they need to make a critical decision on February 9th. The debate would be the fifth of the primary season for the Democrats. Uh, contrast that with, uh, I don't know, how many have we had? About 70 now for the uh, Republicans <laughs> I think at 11 this point. billion uh, yeah, is I the number so. for the GOP. Under uh, the leadership of Wasserman Schultz, the DNC has set a very narrow debate schedule, says Time magazine, including just six debates total compared to, yeah, the more than 20 debates in the last Democratic primary in 2008, which was fantastic, went on forever, got huge ratings. Everyone enjoyed them. The electorate was informed. Uh, The electorate turned out in record numbers. The Democrats won by a landslide. So, of course, the Democrats don't want to repeat that same mistake again this year, I guess. I don't know what the hell uh, they've been thinking. uh, Well, we know what they've been thinking. They thought that this would help somehow protect Hillary Clinton. But that's absolute balderdash because Hillary Clinton has done very well in these debates, and uh, her poll numbers have gone up after each one of them, even though they are top secret and held on the weekends, you know, during football playoffs and uh, holiday weekends and so forth. So so we will see. Uh, That may be uh, ahead. We may have another uh, Democratic debate next week, and, of course, we've got another Republican debate coming up in just a couple of days. So buckle up for that. But, of course, that's horse race stuff. And while we report on the horse race, we also report on the track conditions on which those horses are running. Because, in fact, uh, it is those track conditions that uh, can make as much of a difference as anything else when it comes to our democracy. As we've been reporting now for years over at Bradblog.com and as the Washington Post reported over the weekend... Rosanelle Eaton still remembers the day 70 years ago when she traveled two hours. 70 years ago, she traveled two hours with her mother in a mule-drawn wagon in the Jim Crow South to register to vote at the county courthouse. Before she could, she was forced to take a literacy test. What are you here for, little lady? Eaton recalls a man at the courthouse asking her 70 years ago when she told him he instructed her, okay, don't miss a word and speak the preamble of the Constitution of the United States of America, which she subsequently did without missing a word. Now, 94 years old, the North Carolina resident has voted in every election since and worked to register thousands of others to cast their own ballots. But last year, because of a new state voting law, as Washington Post notes, Eaton said she and her daughter had to make 10 trips to the Division of Motor Vehicles, uh, drive more than 200 miles, and spend more than 20 hours, 20 hours, to obtain one of the required forms of voter identification, because the name on her identifying document, her driver's license did not exactly match that on her voter registration. 
The photo ID rules, part of one of the strictest voting laws in the country, went on trial in a federal courthouse on Monday in North Carolina. The ID requirements set to be used in the March presidential primary in North Carolina were included in a bill passed by North Carolina's legislature just after the Supreme Court gutted a key section of the Voting Rights Act in the summer of 2013. The law, which we have described on this program in a Brad blog as the mother of all voter suppression laws out there in North Carolina, also reduced the number of days of early voting, prohibited people from registering uh, and voting on the same day, stopped ballots cast in the wrong precinct from being counted, ended pre-registration for teenagers before they turned 18, and much more that Republicans have been attempting to do all across the country under the guise of combating voter fraud. And yet, as voting rights advocates note, in-person fraud at the polling place, the only type of voter fraud that photo ID restrictions could even possibly deter, that that type of fraud is vanishingly rare. Opponents of those laws, such as the NAACP and even the U.S. Department of Justice, which are both suing to overturn North Carolina's restrictions on voting, have offered mountains of evidence in response which demonstrate that these restrictions disproportionately disenfranchise minority voters, as well as students, the poor, and the elderly, and they result in far more legal votes being lost than fraudulent votes being prevented. Nonetheless, charges of pervasive voter fraud are now an election time staple, it seems, of the uh, of the right, despite all lack of evidence to support such claims. In fact, as the Brennan Center for Justice points out in a new report published last week, throughout our nation's history, most fraud has been committed not by individuals, but by election insiders. At the same time, the report notes that while American elections should be secure and free of misconduct, we don't have to choose between election integrity and election access. As the Brennan Center's Myrna Perez notes in the report, free and fair access is necessary for an election to have integrity in the first place. She says it's possible to protect our elections without disenfranchising eligible voters. Imagine that. Uh, She goes on to offer a six-part plan to do exactly that in the center's latest report, Election Integrity, a Pro-Voter Agenda. Oh, now there's an idea. Joining us now is Myrna Perez, Deputy Director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. She leads the center's work on voting rights and elections. And she currently also serves as an adjunct professor of, of clinical law at NYU's School of Law. Myrna Perez, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, Myrna, as, as I often point out on this program and at the Brad blog, we don't just cover issues of election integrity right before elections, uh, often you know, when it's too late to do anything about it. Now, th- that's how much of the corporate mainstream media tends to cover these issues, I think. So... With voting now beginning in Iowa, the caucuses in less than a week and in New Hampshire days later. In fact, uh, early voting has already begun in a number of primary states. I I just want to take this quick second to thank you, to thank you and the guys at uh, everyone else at Brennan Center, because uh, you got a new report out this week, but you also cover these issues year round. Uh, and participate in the lawsuits uh, against some of these most insidious cases. So 
Uh, I just want to thank you for that, because there's, you know, this idea that we can only cover these issues right before elections. But it's really difficult to make changes right before elections, isn't it? Certainly. I mean, it's actually better for election officials and voters if uh, we're able to deal with some of the known and predictable problems well before the election, it, you know, both in terms of making sure uh, election officials have the time and resources to implement any reforms that are needed and to make sure that they were done accurately and for voters to to hear what the policies are like and, and how things may have changed. So um, this is definitely something we don't wait till election time to think about, and all people who care about uh, accessible and efficient and effective uh, election administration should be uh, thinking of this as a year-round challenge. It is, and uh, so I I'm, I'm really appreciate it when you guys do it, because, you know, I can yell and scream all I want, uh, but it seems like, you know, when you guys come out with a report, uh, the mainstream corporate media, maybe briefly, but they tend to cover it. So uh, thank you for that, because it's, it's, we don't make changes right before elections. Uh, that's probably a good thing, but we do need to keep talking about it. Uh, before we get down into the, uh, the six recommendations in general that your report makes, uh, it's seemingly getting harder all year around, uh, even in the so-called off-season, to make these changes. Uh, why do you suppose that is? I, I, I see this as a problem not just with Republicans, frankly, uh, but I've also had a very difficult time over the years getting Democrats to understand what is at stake in these matters and how important it is to, for, uh, you know, to reform our voting system. Why do you think it, it's getting harder and harder, and, and why do you think that even uh, Democrats sometimes don't seem to understand the importance of these issues? Well, uh, I, you've, you've actually raised an empirical proposition, like the idea that it's getting harder, and I'm not positive that it is. Mm -hmm. What I do think we are having is a very contested moment in time where the right to vote is being challenged in a way that we haven't seen in, in decades. We are seeing politicians trying to manipulate the rules of the game such that some people can participate and some people can't. And we have um, that butting up against states um, that have very restrictive budgets and may not actually have the money or resources to make reforms that would even save money long term because they require like an initial investment. Um, that coupled with infrastructure problems, like we have been registering our voters in a really out-of-date way for too long and we haven't updated our voting machines, um, are all colliding to produce a, a period of worry mm -hmm. um, where when voters step into the polls on Election Day in November, um, they're not going to be getting the, the best customer service for their um, tax dollars right. and that they're not going to be um, voting in a way that is consistent with the greatest what the greatest democracy in the world should be doing. And so my hope is by uh, coming up with some of um, ideas that... Um, that that uh, that speak to some at least the postulated concerns will be able to sidestep some of the more controversial issues that cause um, a lot of rancor and a lot of political fighting and actually take up a lot of resources and instead be able to focus on the measures that are going to get some bang for their buck and mm -hmm. should be um, 
something that are easy for people to come behind. I, and I want to get into those uh, to those specific points, but underscoring all of this and, and in the opening of your report, you talk about well, your focus, the focus is on the concerns of insider election uh, fraud in your report and how that contrasts with what the public is generally told about fraud. The term voter fraud is the one that's used all the time, uh, particularly by Republicans, but also, I think, too often by Democrats. When the real concern here, as you rightfully note, is about insider fraud, insider election fraud, as opposed to individual Voter fraud. You say it's a false choice to say that secure elections must come at the price of voter exclusion. Help us help us to understand the difference in those terms, voter fraud versus election fraud, and, and how the threats vary between the two. Sure. I mean, part of the impetus behind this document was me being um, a data person and uh, me also being a taxpayer and, and believing that um, uh, that public dollars should be uh, well spent because for every dollar that we're spending on one thing is something that we can't spend somewhere else. And certainly there are a lot of people in this country that have a lot of needs and would have a good claim on those on those dollars. And I kept seeing, um, you know, claims and solutions that weren't actually targeted to address what was postulated as a concern. So people would have a concern about... Uh, you know, voter fraud, and then they'd pass an ID bill that wasn't actually going to uh, address the main problem. Mm -hmm. And so many scholars and many researchers and many folks who who study this issue make a distinction between the kind of fraud perpetuated by some miscreant person who's actually voting and versus someone who has um, inside access is a political insider, someone who who's got special uh, a special relationship with the conducting of the election, such that she or he is able to take advantage of their knowledge and mm-hmm. able to um, to do more damage because we're not talking because they know what the rules are, they know how to get around them, um, they know how to avoid detection. And they can also do it on a more large-scale basis than than one voter who, um, you know, can affect, you know, one vote Mm -hmm. uh, at a time. And so what we tried to do in looking at this is is try to look at where there were opportunities to improve what we're doing and to actually um, study and address some of the changes or some of the concerns that, that folks are having and do it in a way that is sensible and thoughtful and common sense uh, in terms of making sure that the, the, the cure isn't worse than the disease um, and making sure that we're not disenfranchising more people than we're trying to prevent um, for perpetuating fraud. And I, I'm hopeful that folks will start looking at these ideas when they really want, uh, you know, if, if folks are sincere about trying to make our elections have more integrity. Uh, these are these are way, these are certainly starting point. And that's the concern, uh, at least that I have, is that you know there are uh, a lot of the people who are pushing for these uh, restrictions on voting. A lot of the groups, uh, folks from the right, are making these claims. Some of them who should know better because you know they're trying to push, for example, for photo ID restrictions, which tend uh, to disproportionately disenfranchise uh, minorities, elderly students, the poor, and so forth. They point to incidents of voter fraud and say this is why we need photo ID laws but then you look at the 
the fraud in question. And, uh, you know, it, it, it might the photo be. photo ID law wouldn't have stopped it. Right, exactly. It, right. Yeah, it would have had right. no effect whatsoever on a, an absentee fraud. I mean, or which, is why folks, yeah. which is why, you know, I think policymakers, legislators, voters, uh, uh, you know, concerned taxpayers should actually make sure that the things that they're being asked to pay for are effective, just like anything else. I mean, nobody would want us to pay for a bridge that didn't get you across, you know, a riverway, right? Right. Like, that would be unacceptable if it it did something else, like, you know, uh, uh, and, but in this case, we need to make sure that our politicians who are using our resources and our taxpayer dollars are actually fixing um, a problem that, uh, that is real and um, actually addressing it in the most cost-effective and efficient way. Uh, well, there's an idea. Okay, sit tight, Myrna. We're going to take a quick break and come back with Myrna Perez of uh, the Brennan Center's Democracy Program to discuss her report, Election Integrity, a Pro-Voter Agenda, and the six areas that uh, they say we can actually reform and make our system more secure and also have more integrity at the same time. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with uh, Myrna Perez, uh, Deputy Director of Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program, about uh, about her new report, Election Integrity, a Pro-Voter Agenda. Okay, Myrna, let's get into uh, uh, the specifics here. You've got six different uh, recommendations in general. Let's sort of move through each one of them, if if we could, to get an idea. Uh, Number one, modernize voter registration to improve voter rolls. How do we need to modernize our voter registration system? Well, I think most of the country would be horrified to hear how voter registration happens um, in too many parts. So let's let's imagine you go to um, you know a government agency. Let's mm-hmm. imagine you're going to your state um, Medicaid office. You right. walk in, the clerk will ask you for your name, your address, your date of birth, any um, any documentation of citizenship that's needed, um, and then if they're doing what they're supposed to, um, they'll ask you if they if you want to register to vote. And if you say yes, they hand you a piece of paper that you then have to fill in your name, your date of birth, your address, mm-hmm. everything else that you had to do before. Right. Um, and then it has to get bundled. Then it has to get sent. And then, if, you know, somebody has to hand enter it into uh, a, a database. And hopefully you can read the person's chicken scratch. And hopefully coffee didn't get put in it, mm-hmm. uh, spelled on it, or rain, uh, you know, the envelope didn't get rained on in the transfer from the post office. Right. And what that ends up happening, that kind of system that is so based on paper, um, it ends up being very cumbersome, very expensive, because you have all those paper forms and you have to do all the mailing. 
very expensive because you have to pay somebody to do the data entry. And there's a lot of mistakes on it because you can't read people's writings. Um, you know, people get the forms too late and, you know, people's addresses or information has changed. If we made the system such that it was more synced up to when a person was conducting business with a government agency and we had the information that was already put into the computer um, at the social service agency mm-hmm. or the government agency electronically sent over, um, you wouldn't have the problem of the time delay. You wouldn't have the problem of the data entry errors. You wouldn't have the problem of the having to pay somebody to to hand enter it. Um, and you get cleaner, uh, cleaner cheaper results um, rolled as a result. So as in uh, Oregon has now done this, California has now done this? Yeah, or, Oregon or we're and going California to? have yeah. done that. At the, or they're, they're in the process of implementing it at their DMV agencies, mm-hmm. and obviously we get more benefit if more agencies that register voters do it, and we get our roles even more complete if all agencies that interact with eligible Americans were to do this kind of automatic registration. And, and it would just so be a matter of automatically, if you go to get a driver's license, just include that name and address, uh, presuming they're right. a citizen you know, and, and, and eligible. And it's not, it's not compulsory if you mm-hmm. still, you know, people still have the option to opt out. People still can say, you know what, I don't want to register to vote for whatever reason that they have. Um, you still have your eligibility checks to make sure that the person is over 18 and that they're a citizen. Um you know, what this would do would be shifting the presumption such that the person is on the rolls or going to get put on the rolls unless they say they don't want to be on the rolls, which is a very important public policy change that social scientists universally agree, you know, is going to have a big impact, this well, presumption shift, so that you're on unless you say you don't want on. But and then Mar- electronically transferring it over. Ma- They're uh- two very small things have a big impact. Re- Republicans claim this will lead to fraud if everyone is registered uh, automatically when they do a transaction like that at the DMV. This leads to fraud. Do we know one way or another whether that is true? Is that speculative? Well, I or mean, is there- first of all, the, they're not, they're, they're being, well, I don't, I don't know who in particular uh, you're referring to, but it's not everybody. It's everybody that's eligible, mm-hmm. right? So whatever, um, Whatever eligibility checks that still have that happen under the state. So, for example, in Oregon, there uh, you need to present documentation in order to get a, a, a driver's license, and none of the documents that a U.S. citizen could present to show uh, permanent residence. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, lawful residence mm-hmm. would not show citizenship. So, like every American that uh, encounters uh, the the DMV office in Oregon will be presenting a document a, a document that shows citizenship mm-hmm. and not every every state will have different policies it doesn't take election officials out so it's not everybody willy-nilly it's you know the 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 usual checks that election officials need to do pursuant to their state laws about getting folks on the rolls um, you know people will still have the opportunity to get themselves off um, and rather than causing fraud it'll actually make our rolls cleaner um, which you know, reduce opportunities for for abuse. Yeah, I think I, I, I tend to agree with you, and the, the uh, scientists, computer scientists I've talked to said that, yes, it can be done safely. All right, let, let's, because uh, our time is short, and I want to get through uh, all six of these if possible. Uh, I- number two, ensure security and reliability of our voting machines. We had uh, the Brennan Center's Larry Norton on uh, a, a few months ago when his report came out on this, an important report about how our voting systems are now aging uh, and uh, failing, and that that disenfranchises voters. I agree. I had some concerns about replacing those machines with similar ones. 
Uh, but yet that's a uh, one of the recommendations in your report as well. Right. I mean, our machines are old. They're getting unreliable. Uh, if we are going to have the best democracy in the world, we need to make sure that our voters are getting uh, the best kind of equipment that we need. And uh, folks that are having to use zip disks <laughs> to run their voting machines um, are not... Um, you know, are not using machines that are reliable. Do you have I mean, we're talking about really, really old technology. Do you have concerns about uh, hand-counting paper ballots as they do in places like New Hampshire and 40% of the towns? Is that a security concern as you see it? That's not something that I've studied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I think uh, asking... I was attempting to try and do something modest by mm-hmm. trying to to come up with things that uh, folks could agree on, and there was some good science and some good studying around. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might I'm sure there are a bunch of other things that could be studied, but I think the evidence is pretty compelling on the fact that our our voting machines uh, are old. The election officials are stressed out and worried about how they're going to do all these hacks, and they're spending a tremendous amount of resources to try and just make these things you know, bump and move along when what we really need is is better and new machines. Which takes us to uh, another possible solution to the problem with the machines in your third recommendation, uh, Internet voting, which kind of makes my head explode even mentioning it, but uh, you recommend do not implement Internet voting systems until security is proven. I, I wonder if security can ever be proven, and even if it is, uh, we lose the oversight of the uh, of the public when it comes to election results with Internet voting systems. Is, is that something that, you know, states are trying, some states, some places are trying to move to it. Is there any possibility that this can actually be secure or that we would actually want to give up the oversight that we would necessarily have to in order to have Internet voting? Well, the, te- the, the technologists are generally skeptical, like academics and, um, and folks that work uh, in uh, research areas under computer science seem to be pretty universally in agreement that we're not there yet, right? We, there are too many um, uh, security issues mm-hmm. to overcome. There's too many questions about uh, voter privacy to be able to dealt with. There's concerns about auditability. Um, but as with technology... Um, with all things with technology, you know, I'm reluctant, and many of them are reluctant to say never, ever, 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 ever is this possible. But what I do think you're going to get a lot of agreement on is that it's not now, and we're not there now, and we shouldn't be seduced by um, how prevalent the use of Internet is to do things that are much less important. I mean, voting, you know, buying something off of Amazon mm-hmm. is not as um impactful as conducting an election and, and, and buying uh, something over the internet buying something over amazon is also transparent i can go look at it after the transaction the 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 the, the retailer can look at it the credit card company that is not the case with a secret ballot and that's why internet that's why voting over the internet is not the same as banking and shopping over the internet right i mean it's different and, and like all things in life there are their public policy. There's goods on both sides, right? I mean, there, there's certainly we have a we have a real challenge in this country of making sure that our military over, and overseas voters are um, have a reasonable um, access uh, to the ballot, and um, these are all things that policymakers need to work through. But I think there's there's enough agreement and there's enough evidence that we're not there yet um, for for folks to not be. Um, 
hearing a, a siren's call of, of voting over uh, of voting over the internet being a way to to, to alleviate some of the turnout problems that we're having. Number four, and I mentioned this in in the opening to this segment of uh, photo ID uh, restrictions. Uh, adopt only common sense voter identification proposals. In fact, uh, Mirna Perez, uh, a majority of states already require some form of ID when one goes to vote. All 50 states require uh, ID when registering to vote under federal law. Um, It's just these very strict, uh, you know, these states that that require a very strict type of photo ID, one of just a handful, uh, that are really meant to keep people from voting rather than uh, secure the voting, uh, you know, the, the polling place. So what kind of measures uh, do you call for for common sense voter identification proposals? Um, well, one of them is allow alternatives. Um, you know, we don't have, uh, there's no evidence that, uh, you know, a state like Michigan has less secure or uh, less security than a state like Texas, which has a really strict ID. There's no um there's no giant. Um, uh, there's no claim that that you know fraud is so much bigger, or in-person impersonation fraud is so much bigger than another state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can look at some of the um, some of the lessons from the states that have different kinds of ID laws and figuring out what what works for them and how how and how it's operating in a way. Um, that both addresses the concerns of folks that have integrity issues, but at the same time make sure that every eligible person can still be able to vote. Um, you know, another thing this country could do is just make sure that everybody has the kind of identification that is required to vote. I mean, that would be incredibly um, expensive and, and require a big bureaucracy, but it's um, it would go uh, a long way in, in making sure that folks uh, uh, are able to to, to participate. And I mean, and obviously, you know, along with that, we need to make sure that poll workers and all people in the pipeline are trained on how to get, how to help people get these identi- uh, any identification that's needed and how to enforce the laws evenly and accurately. In as much as there is uh, fraud caused by voters themselves, it tends to happen via absentee fraud, absentee ballot fraud. Number five of, in your recommendation, Myrna Perez, increase security of mail-in ballots. I agree. How do we do that? I'm concerned when we expand mail-in ballots, while, while people need to be able to vote absentee if they can't be there on Election Day, as we expand absentee uh, uh, voting, vote by mail, now in many, many states, uh, there are pro- problems and uh, concerns about security. How do you recommend increasing right. I mean, the it's security? It's not just fraud, but it's also lost ballots, right? I mean, yeah, it, that's, that's right. another thing that folks need to be, it doesn't have to be malfeasance, you know, mm-hmm. but I think there are lessons to be learned from the states that um, that have been doing mail balloting for a really long time and have it done universally. Um, part of the thing that I found interesting in the report is how much they have to invest. Those states, like, and I'm thinking primarily of Oregon and Washington because they've had the most experience with it, mm-hmm. because that is their their you know overwhelmingly main mechanism of voting. They've really um, they've really put resources into making sure. Um, that they have, uh, you know, the best security that works within that kind of system. But I think at, at, a, at a minimum, uh, you need to uh, study all stages of the mail-in ballot pipeline. It's not just, uh, you know, what comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you need to look at every particular place where it can be lost and make sure that you can track what's happening to it and, and who has it and under um, what conditions. It's like a it's it it would just be like a chain of custody issue if this were um, you know if this were evidence in another in another setting. Um, and then make sure that um, signature verification is done in the best way possible. I mean, one of the things that I uh, found really interesting in my research was the fact that um, that uh, that law enforcement trains the folks that are uh, conducting, uh, that are verifying the signatures. So uh-huh. that folks are really uh, trained to be able to attest what's the difference between someone getting tired and kind of getting sloppy on some of their signatures versus um, what is likely to be a fraudulent. Because often you have people who are not really trained in signature verification saying, uh, oh, this is uh, a fraudulent signature, throwing out the ballot. And one of the things that Oregon does, I think, now is they actually notify the voters that, hey, uh, there's a concern about your signature. You've got X number of days to come in and cure this problem. That's important. And uh, and as you know, just the delivery uh, system. I often tell people, you know what? The the post office box is, is the ultimate black box. You drop that ballot in there. Who knows if it ever gets there? Uh, in Oregon, uh, th- there was an, uh, an election official who was actually receiving these in the mail and filling uh, in some ballots uh, w- w- in some races where there was no vote at all, and she was checking the Republican in there. That's some of what you give up, I think, when you do do vote by mail. If you have to, fine. But if you don't, vote on Election Day at the polling place. Uh, finally, uh, number six, protect against insider wrongdoing. We we talked a little bit about that at the beginning of this, uh, uh, Mirna. Uh, an insider especially on these election systems, these voting systems, an insider can you know, change the results of any election in about 30 seconds' time on the voting systems that we now use. Uh, why do you suppose it is that people don't seem to understand the real threat of elections and, and how it comes, in truth, from insiders, not from voters? Um, I think folks are, I mean, some of it I think is not a real concern. Some of it I think is pretextual. Um, you know, folks are trying to come up with a reason and they actually want to keep some people from voting. But sometimes I think it's just, uh, you know, sloppy policymakers just not being careful with their words. And, and one of my, one of the things that I thought was most interesting in doing this research is like when talking to folks who do fraud prevention in completely different fields, um, they have lessons that are applicable. Um, and could be illustrative and useful. And I tried to go through some of those things and some very simple things that make sense to everybody, like, you know, making sure that the detection is swift and certain, right? Because if somebody gets away with committing, uh, you know, an act of fraud, they're likely to do it again. Um, You know, and having transparency procedures and internal controls um, and, and, you know, and good chain of custody and good physical leadership, you know, all... Uh, all are very helpful, you know, when you make the, public, the punishment public, mm-hmm. that also has, a, uh, you know, a deterrent, uh, in, because people are not, uh, people don't think they're going to get away with it. I mean, if we want to make sure that our elections are uh, free and they're fair, we need to expect the most and, uh, of our of our administrators and our, uh, you know, and volunteers and everyone that is in a position to actually um, make the election happen. Myrna, uh, do you have hope for uh, 2016 or do you have hope or do you have fears for 2016 as we as the voting finally begins this year? Uh, I, I, I know that a lot of people are very concerned about much of what you said about 
voter suppression, about the quality of the machines. Uh, and your final thoughts here, uh, what do we have? I know you have no crystal ball, but what do we have to look forward to as voting begins? I'm quite concerned. Are you? Well, I mean, I, I mean I'm concerned, but I'm also hopeful. I mean, there are, um, we still have time. We, we still have, um, you know, uh, an option of, of making good on some of these reforms. And um, elections are a really important time in this country's, um, you know, in this country's psyche, right? It's where it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you know, black or white, we all come together for a common cause. And um, I, I don't want folks who are worried about what could go wrong to be deterred from voting. What they need to do is go and vote anyway, and if they have a problem, they need to call me <laughs> and we'll figure it out. Well, uh, you know, we're there's going to be... Um, uh, you know, voter advocates all across the country ready to try and assist where we can. And, um, you know, I don't want people to stay away from the polls because they're worried about something going wrong. I want people to be part of the solution. If they see something, they should say something, um, and they should go and get all their, their family and friends to well, for what it's worth, I find that uh, people, uh, I know that there are concerns. I've heard this from a lot of Democratic officials. They're concerned if we talk about concerns about the voting systems that people aren't going to show up and vote. I actually find quite the opposite. When people hear about it, uh, they want to fight like hell to make sure they get to cast their vote and their vote gets counted uh, counted as cast and in a way that they can know it's been counted as cast. They're looking for solutions. So I would suggest that the more we talk about this, uh, I don't think it keeps people from voting. I think it makes them want to uh, vote harder, as it were. Mirna Perez, deputy director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program, uh, leading the center's work on voting rights and elections. I think you're going to have a very, very busy year, Mirna, but I hope you'll come back and, and talk to us again about it as things move forward. Hey, thank you so much. Have a good day. You bet. Uh, check out her report at BrennanCenter.org. Election integrity, a pro-voter agenda. There's an idea. Speaking of election integrity, the uh, election integrity movement lost one of our own over the past few days. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we will come back to talk about that loss. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The election integrity community lost a very, very important voice late last week. Wisconsin's John Washburn played a key role in my coverage of electronic voting issues and concerns and much more over the years at the Brad blog. While John joined me on several occasions on the air here over the years, I spoke with him many more times off-air, on the phone, and via email. John was a champion of computer testing in his work life and had long called for very specific protocols to be used for the local testing of electronic voting machines before and after elections to make sure that they were, you know, counting votes accurately. He was all too well aware that e-voting systems in use in Wisconsin and around the country were often faulty, leading to the possibility of both malfeasance and misfeasance, hacks through purposeful manipulation and errors due to simple misprogramming by otherwise well-meaning local officials. 
He rallied for formalizing testing procedures for the nation's fragile and vulnerable electronic voting systems. As a member of uh, Fair Elections Wisconsin and other election integrity efforts and organizations, much of his work now documented at uh, his website, his personal website, washburnresearch.org, John fought for transparency in elections and in public government. He received an award for his pivotal public records request work that helped inform the public and helped to uh, to put public officials on notice that we, the people, are watching. And most importantly, he understood that we must be able to oversee our own voting systems for the systems to have any legitimacy at all. John was, in fact, a Republican, or at least a libertarian Republican, as he often identified himself over the years. His identification with the right was very important, frankly, in underscoring that the that the fight for real election integrity is not actually a partisan issue at all, as some might have you believe. There were many, many times over the years, too many in fact, when I had to turn to John for information and insight concerning elections, disastrous and otherwise, up in the great state of Wisconsin, most notably his insights were invaluable in trying to understand a disastrous series of elections, including as well as before and after the 2012 recall election up in Wisconsin for Republican Governor Scott Walker and the state's contentious Supreme Court election battles, that continue to rage today. Uh, longtime Brad blog readers and broadcast listeners will very well recall the controversy concerning uh, then Waukesha County Clerk Kathy Nicholas, who discovered some 4,000 unreported votes the day after a very close, very contentious 2012 state Supreme Court election, which on election night gave the court's majority to uh, to progressives only to see Nicholas's questionable new results the next day flip the court's majority back to state conservatives at a key moment when the future of Walker's new union-busting uh, schemes were coming before the uh, state Supreme Court in Wisconsin. In fact, John Washburn, trusted well by many folks on the left, the right, uh, and other, uh, actually sat in at one point for the embattled Kathy Nicholas at, at, a, at a meeting at one point during uh, uh, the Waukesha County Executive Board meeting when uh, long this was long before the 2012 election uh, Supreme Court election disaster uh, when it was discovered that Nicholas had compiled election results only on her own personal, circa Windows 95 PC inside her own office with no oversight whatsoever. And uh, there was a meeting where uh, the Waukesha uh, County Executive Board wanted to ask her about that. She wasn't able to make it. John uh, Washburn actually showed up in her place. Now, even Republicans on the Waukesha Executive Board were not happy with Kathy Nicholas. Uh, and I should add that John subsequently lost all confidence in that county clerk and eventually came to tell me that there is no reason, no reason to have faith in the results of elections as reported in either Waukesha or anywhere else in the state in lieu of actual human verification of those results, which by and large almost never happens. Even in places where paper ballots, hand-marked paper ballots, can be checked, 
to assure the accuracy of the computers uh, that tallied uh, that tallied the results. Our democracy was all the greater for John's untiring contribution to the cause. We are all unspeakably poorer for his loss, especially as we head into another presidential election year now with almost all of the same flawed and vulnerable electronic voting systems that John had decried still in use and still not properly tested or overseeable. That is true in every state in the union at this point. The election integrity movement uh, will miss John Washburn tremendously. The Brad blog and the Bradcast will miss him as at least as much as both a trusted friend and absolutely key colleague. He was also, by the way, very funny, very wry, very sardonic. He he sold shirts at his website with the caption on them, "Electronic voting: the truth is a trade secret." His uh, his wit and good humor was always greatly appreciated and, frankly, very much needed uh, as well, given what we cover around here. Wisconsin's John Washburn, election integrity champion, was 54 years old. He is survived by his wife and three children, who I hope all know what a wonderful and dedicated man that he was and how much his important contributions meant to democracy to so many of us and, indeed, an entire nation whether that nation knew it or not. We will press on and continue the good fight in his memory. My thanks today to my producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest, Mirna Perez, of the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can, as always, download it at bradblog.com or over on iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review, make it a little easier for other people to find the work that we do here. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find and follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Bradblog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>